Morning, everybody. Welcome back to Run Your Mouth Podcast. It's an honor and pleasure to be live with you guys, as always. It's the uh, thrills of being in the apartment, being able to do more Run Your Mouth Podcasts. And today, we're going to be even more ADD than usual. we got a jam-packed episode. We've got Robert, hopefully coming on for the monthly segment, giving us some business tips, letting us know what's new in the world of Sheath. And then we've got Gary Richide, who wrote the book, A Twisted History of the United States. It's a worthwhile read. An easy breezer. That's loaded with all the actual history that they didn't tell us. That's the reason why you sat there in class thinking how bored you were. You know why? It's because they were lying to you. You know, they were telling you they were just trying to set the foundations for you to go, please, government, take over all critical industries and give me green energy. That's what your thoughts were. You were sitting there and you're like, I feel like I'm being manipulated. I feel like they're lying to me and I feel like they're uh, implanting socialist ideals so that when I become an adult, I'm one of these people that wants to slap dicks onto kids, put up wind mills and ruin the earth you you had that read but you can cleanse yourself by reading a twisted history of the united states and finding out all the things that they said that were complete and total lies so at some point these people are going to be hopping on and so we'll weave in and out of the news stories that i had prepared uh because i started late and i just got these guys the links and yeah well you know how this way how this show works uh let's start with how come the kids in my building don't want my candy is there something strange about me, the way I operate in the hallways? Are these neighbors hearing more of these podcasts than I've convinced myself that they can hear because I've soundproofed the apartment and now I'm the person in the building that they're like, hey, don't talk to that guy? Have I become that person within the confines of my own building? I mean, there's a possibility here. I saw all sorts of kids. They were running around in that hallway. They're wearing they're wearing their costumes. I mean, I wasn't like noticing the kids like in a weird way. I was just noticing that they that they were doing it, and I uh, I was like, shit, I'm gonna have to get myself some candy. And I gotta be honest, I was very reluctant to buy candy because if I buy candy, I'm gonna eat all the candy. So it's like I want to know up front. If you guys are coming here, you're gonna knock on my door. I'm happy to give you kids candy. I think they go out into the neighborhood. I feel, I feel like they don't bother the people in the building. I feel like they they get out on the streets and they go to the nicer homes because they think that the people in the nicer homes are going to have the better candy. But let me tell you, I'll come prepared. I'll buy full-size bars. You tell me up front, you can even put in orders. I'll put up a sign-up sheet next to my door and you let me know what candy you were looking for on Halloween. You don't even have to knock on my door. I'll just I'll, I'll just I'll just put it outside in one of those little buckets. So anyways, I picked up uh, Reese's peanut butter cups because I have found that since COVID, while most of my taste and smell has come back, for some reason, peanut butter is just not what it used to be. I mean, I used to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on the regular. Peanut butter and jelly sandwich, those were, those were, uh, those were an easy meal. You know, when you weren't quite in the mood for dessert, but you and you can convince yourself that you were doing something healthy. You lay down that whole grain be- bread, you, you toast it. You throw down your all-natural peanut butter, then you jelly it up for some good sugar, and you pretend like that was a healthy snack slash meal. I, I would eat one or two of those a day. I was a big believer in peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but then COVID came along, and while I've totally recuperated, and I don't uh, I don't turn my back on anything I said about the nonsense that was the COVID and the response to COVID, it did take peanut butter from me. And we all have to make sacrifices in life. You can't just plow forward, living your life, you know, without anything being uninterrupted you got to be buddhist about these things you have to recognize that things in my life are going to change that's not always going to be the way that it was things are going to fall into the past you know things change and so sometimes you have a lifetime relationship with milk and that's going real good and then you turn an age where it starts making you nauseous and then sometimes you 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 were eating a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and then a deadly virus that wasn't that deadly comes around and it steals peanut butter from you and now you can't eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches so anyways, you know, Reese's, peanut M&M's, 
I used to not be, well, I used to be a big candy bar guy, and then I, I, I quit the candy bars. I got myself off the candy bars, but then late night road trips, candy bars came back into my life, because sometimes you got to stay up on the road, and you convince yourself a candy bar will help. And that, that's like fat guy logic when you look at like the big Reese's cup and you're like, well, it's two in the morning and I have to stay up on the road. Let me tell you, the best Reese's product that exists is they got the ones with the Reese's pieces built into it. That That's the best product. You can go down the Run Your Mouth archives. We had a conversation all the way back when Yosef was still on the show. Anyways, since COVID, I don't even really like peanut butter. So I figured the Reese's cups were a safe bet. That's what I figured. I figured, you know what? These kids come o- don't come over. I got this bag of Reese's cups. I'm not going to eat the Reese's cups. They'll find their way to some kids, even if I have to hit the streets and go, hey, I can't be having this candy in my apartment. But you know what I discovered? If you take two Reese's cups and then you sandwich them together to make one bigger Reese's cup, you get a better peanut butter chocolate combo. And then you can eat about six of those in about three, 30 seconds, maybe late at night. And then you can have to unwrap all the other ones and put them into the garbage so you don't finish it. So that that's the uh, that's my Christmas tale. All right, next is, uh, you know, so I got a gripe with the kids in my building. Maybe I'll have to go talk to their parents and ask them what I've done that they won't knock on my door and take the Christmas candy. I mean, the Halloween candy that I bought for them. Maybe they can just tell I'm Jewish and they're like, don't bother the Jews on Halloween. Maybe they know that when we were kids and everyone's running around the neighborhood and they're having a good time knocking on doors, putting on their costumes, they, they know. They're looking at us and they just know, you know, don't bother that guy. He never got to have Halloween in his kid. You, you, he might be the one that poisons your candy. All right. They got to make it easier to buy shit. Every time I got to go to your website and I got to put in a password and then I got to download an app and then I got to get an email and then I got to fill out a form and then I got to put in a credit, just fucking sell me shit. Why is technology making it so much more difficult just to buy things? I, I don't, also, if you could send me an email to reset my password, you know what's the better system? Just do the one-time codes. Just, just do the one-time codes. One-time codes are great. You send me a one-time code and now I'm logged in. I don't even need a password for your website. I give you my email address, and then every time I need to go back to your website because I don't remember any of the other shit, just send me a one-time code. With that note, uh, airlines don't make it uh, very easy to track what flights you've actually booked. Well, you know what? We'll save that rant for another time. Uh, But I do think I might get banned from American Airlines because the amount of times that I book a flight and then figure out four hours later that I booked it to the wrong city on the wrong date. I've canceled so many American Airlines flights. Oh, you know what's a good scam that they have going, though? is that when you switch your flight, this is a great scam. You know, I I, I appreciate a good scam every once in a while, uh, but here's a good one. If you change your flight on an airline, and let's say you spent like the 20, 30 bucks to not have to sit, sit with the smelly, farty people in the back, because listen, sometimes on a long flight, that 10, 15 minutes that you got to wait watching old people fumble around for their bags as opposed to being closer to the front of the plane, depends on the price tag. I mean, I can't sit in I can't sit in an inside seat. I take too many bathroom breaks, mostly because I'm anxious and I want to get out of my seat. I mean, on a two-hour flight, I'm going to take five bathroom breaks. I can't be on a middle or inside seat. I'm going to drive those people nuts, and then I'm going to be sitting there running circles in my head about how much time till the next time I can bother these people because I just want to get up. I just want to move around. I'm an antsy motherfucker. You guys have seen it in action. I mean, look at the way I'm pacing right now. So first scam that they're pulling now is that they give you an option where they tell you you get a free seat selection. That's their new thing. You got to pay just for the ability to pick a seat and then they charge you for a seat. Delta's pulling that scam. American Airlines has this scam where if you change your flight, 
then they'll tell you that there's no like that there might be no fee for changing your flight. But what they don't tell you is, let's say you've already purchased. Let's let's say you purchased like a, um, the the fire row. I mean the exit row, and you've got all that that beautiful beautiful legroom all to yourself. You spent the thirty bucks and you purchased it, and then you switch your flight. You're gonna have to repurchase that. That's thirty dollars down the drain. And you start adding these things up. You start doing that Jew math of of keeping your receipts, adding all these things up. Next thing you know, I don't know. You're 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 bankrupt. Bad things happen. All right, let's take a couple comments. And then let's uh, let's get into some news topics. Roscoe P, you banging all the moms in the building? I haven't banged a single lady in this building. And there's some winners, but it hasn't happened. Cole Warren, Rob, we love you, but you look exactly like the guy who was noticing kids in a weird way. That is a uh, um, that is a fair point. All right. What else we got here? Adam James Cook. Sometimes you lose your legs in a pointless war. Back on the drums. 23. PB&J is good as ever. Ever have an Uncrustable? They're those Freebird PB&J pre-made things. I actually have not. I'd be I'd be curious to try a, um, an Uncrustable from Smuckers. On God, I'd kill a hooker with a dull spoon for Uncrustables right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Isn't all that math Jewish? There you go. All right. Let's see uh, if Robert's joining us. I did give him the link kind of late. Um, but let's get into some news topics until uh, he shows up. Um, oh, and before we get into today's news topics, guys, this is my big Texas weekend. Come out. If you're in Fort Worth, Dallas area, dude, those are going to be some fun-ass shows. Um, Fort Worth at a comedy club late at night, 10 p.m. I love a good late-night show. Those are the best comedy shows. I know you might be thinking, hey, it's late at night. Dude, late at night's the best. After 10 p.m. is when the best comedy takes place. So show up. It's myself. I got a local comic, very funny. I met him at uh, Childerberg, uh, and I got like 45. I got all sorts of new jokes, and then we might do a short, uh, like, little run-your-mouth podcast uh, if there's time. You know, getting quickly into the new news topics on Saturday in Austin with Scott Horton, Sunday at Texas A&M, and then I just added a St. Louis date. I've added an Omaha, Nebraska date. I've added a Kansas City date, Tucson, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. We're getting around, so, you know. Buy some tickets, come hang out. It's going to be a good time. All right, let's get into today's topics. What flavor garbage mouth is Walensky experiencing? With Biden's new gas profit taxes, how high will gas prices go? Why Jewish leaders are promising to make 2023 their whiniest year yet? Does Herschel Walker have the most powerful sperm on the planet? And when will we get to see the hammer? Will we get to see the hammer at the trial of David DePape, or will he be dead before that ever happens? And all that and more on today's Run Your Mouth podcast. Uh, so let's get into some of these topics. Let's start with the uh, trial of uh, the guy who is, uh, you know, Paul Pelosi's gay lover. Maybe we really have no idea. Let's be honest. We don't know. Who knows? Maybe the Pelosi's are so cheap. And they don't like spending any of their hundreds and millions of dollars. And when Nancy goes away, she doesn't really care about her husband. So she turns off the security monitors. She takes all the security with him. And she leaves him to be alone in her in the house and think about what he's done. Maybe they got a weird relationship that way. And maybe I've gotten this story entirely wrong. All of these are possibilities. Here we go. This is the police report because now they're really digging into building this story to let us know what this guy's motives were. After all, he's on QAnon. He's got the power of the Republicans. He's been fueled by rhetoric of hate, by the growing tides of anti-Semitism. And so he showed up to this house and he wanted to break the speaker's knees. He wanted to break her knees. Why? Because then if she was handicapped and they had to wheel her around, you know, it would be an example to all the other politicians. 
about what happens when I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what specifically he was mad at the Pelosi's for. I used to do that in high school though. Sometimes we had roaches in our building. And I would set them on fire and uh, tape them to the wall as an example to the other roaches. And let me tell you, when we did that, we stopped seeing cockroaches, which I don't think it was that the roaches got the message as much as the exterminator was like, okay, I better actually come into this building and kill some of these roaches because otherwise these high school kids are going to set them on fire and tape them to the wall. So by the way, if you're dealing with bugs, it's not a bad approach in your building. It might work with your landlord too. I'm just letting you guys know it worked for me. And so I'm trying to pay things forward on what might work for you. So now they're saying, you know, this guy had a notebook, which is great. It's going to be fun when they read the notebook. And the notebook specifically says, uh, I did this because of things that Republicans were saying. I was a very nice person. And then I was watching Fox News one day. And I realized I had to take actions into my own hands. And uh, apparently this guy pled not guilty. So it's going to be interesting if it actually makes it to trial. I'm hoping it does. And that maybe, you know how they had that famous moment with OJ where it's like, if the glove doesn't fit, you must have quit. So I hope they do that, but trying to shove a hammer into someone's asshole. You know, they actually do a live demonstration showcasing the fact that this hammer didn't fit all that well. That even when they tried greasing it up, it couldn't be removed properly. And that the reason that Paul Pelosi hit himself in the face while trying to remove a hammer from his lover's asshole was because it didn't fit properly. And he should have known that. I mean, at 80 years old, you should know what size objects can comfortably fit into somebody else's orifices. I feel like this is something that you should have figured out, unless maybe he hasn't explored his gayness until he turned like 81 or 82, and he's actually new to the game, in which case there should be coaches for this thing. I mean, if you got a couple hundred million dollars, there should be some sort of a coach that you can call who can uh, you know, help you navigate these new waters of what may or may not fit inside of uh, somebody else's rectum. Uh, and then here he is, he's sitting in court. It's one of these nice watercolor pictures. And you got to love that they don't, I guess, like cameras in court, that there's still a job for these watercolor artists. I mean, it's a nice watercolor piece, but, you know, I bet there aren't too many jobs out there for these watercolor artists. What do these people make, these watercolors? I'd love to become like a finger painter, a court drawing finger painter. I mean, how much schooling do you have to do to become one of these? Because, uh, like, I'm a pretty good doodler. It would actually be funny if I had this job. And then at the end of it, you just had like doodles of dragons and like the stupid shit that I used to draw in class where you space out and the newspaper asks you, hey, you got the you got that watercolor we needed for a picture for the paper. And it's just of like a different scene that makes no sense. Uh, stick figures revolting against the judge or something. All right. So anyways, you got this watercolor. Um, and how dumb are San Francisco courts that these people are still wearing masks? I mean, how, how are you supposed to have an honest court process if everyone's constrained by masks? All right. What else do we have on this? This is from the New York Post. Paul Pelosi attack. Cops weren't monitoring cameras during breaking. The Capitol Police has live cameras outside the Democratic House Speaker and Nancy Pelosi's house. But officers were reportedly not watching the feeds when her husband was brutally assaulted. Uh, which uh, what, what, what would they have the Epstein team on this? You know, those, those security guards got fired and they said, all right, well, we got another post for you. We're, we're the White Capitol Police. I actually tweeted an article from the week, which I read the headline, and then I read this, and someone pointed out that I'm illiterate because it actually said that they don't monitor it when Nancy Pelosi's away, which could be accurate. And then I guess at least there's an explanation for why they weren't monitoring the cameras. But, you know, that's what they got to do is they got they, they need a couple days where basically we pour all of our questions out of why the story doesn't make sense, and then they fact-find where they read all the stuff, and then they uh, start responding to it to make sure that they can get their uh, stories in order. 
And now, let's talk about Walla Walla Chinsky. Walla Walla Winsky. Walla Walla Chinsky. All right. So, Walla Chinsky, what has she been, quadruple vaccinated at this point? Comes down with COVID. She's so lucky that she's been vaccinated and that she's so lucky that we have the Paxlovid. So she takes the Paxlovid. And otherwise, I mean, this lady would have been dead in the streets. I mean, a healthy lady of 40 years old would have been dead in the streets if it wasn't for the marvels of modern science, if it wasn't for these vaccines, if it wasn't for the Paxlovids. Now, apparently, Paxlovid rebounds are very rare. But if my memory serves me right, which it might not, I believe that Biden had a rebound. I believe that Fauci had a rebound. And I believe now this lady has a rebound. So I think we're three for three on public figures that we would know about who are the ones advocating for this stuff, all getting rebounds. I got to be honest, Paxlovid might work great. I don't understand Paxlovid. I haven't researched it like the vaccines because they're not telling me that I can't, you know, go into places if I hadn't taken it. So it's not as important to me. And it might work well, but 5% of people get fucking garbage mouth. I'd like to know if this lady had garbage mouth. Did she experience garbage mouth? At what point do you start questioning yourself? You're like... How do I still pretend like all of this is good science when it's not working for myself or any of the other people around me? But who knows? Maybe they'd all be dead if they didn't get that vaccine. Maybe they would have been in that small percentage. And so the vaccines, the Paxlovids, and even though it's rebounding and getting COVID anyways, maybe maybe it all actually was a working strategy. Next up, you got people and they want to declare pandemic amnesty. That's what they want to do. Listen, we got it wrong, but nobody could get it right. There is an episode of Part of the Problem probably coming out later today or tomorrow. We did a full one hour debunking this bullshit. Uh, If you're looking for pandemic amnesty, as me being the most right person on all of COVID from the outset, minus a couple things that I got wrong, but between reading Alex Berenson and my access to none other than Stephen, the non-science wonder boy, we had pretty good coverage through this entire thing start to finish. And so I I can give you pandemic amnesty. There's only one way to do it, which is if you're one of these liberal cunt professors who got everything wrong and then wants to keep their job and go, listen, I advocated on behalf of a totalitarian regime that was taking away your rights and wasn't letting you work a job and might have ruined your life and eroded your habits and gotten people killed because uh, we didn't actually do retune healthcare. People didn't get pre-screened. People left their jobs. People got depressed. People drank more. Kids didn't go to school. And listen, I got a lot of these things wrong, but please forgive me. And you know how you get forgiven? You can buy a ticket to one of my comedy shows. You come to one of my comedy shows, I'll get myself some, like, uh, COVID Jesus water, and I'll redeem your soul if you come and you buy a ticket. And you, and you, But you got to laugh at the jokes. That's how you heal yourself. If you can listen to my COVID jokes and then laugh in it, you can walk out a new person healed from the blunders of your way of just siding with government blindly uh, being, being so bought into the system that allows you to have your job that makes you a lot of money that you don't question any of the facts. And instead you serve as a propagandist where you go, all right, if that's the official narrative, I better use my academic credentials to sell this to other people. Because as long as other people are buying into this information, then the system stays afloat and then they'll continue to fund my research. They'll continue to fund my college. They'll continue to give these college loans. I'll continue to be in the elite. I want to be in a protected class. And if I want to be in a protected class, I better play ball, and that's essentially not having integrity. And you know what is having even less integrity? is Go back to the first run-your-mouth end-of-year recap where I described where I was trying to build a website. Kind of fell through. I'm not great with follow-through. I'm better at just saying I'm going to do things. I'll be honest. Everyone's got their strengths in life. Uh, But I was talking about building a website called keepingscore.com, and 
the idea was let's keep score. People continuously get things wrong and then they just get to continue being the people that we listen to. And I feel like that is one of the biggest injustices in our society is that we we should be keeping better stats on news anchors, better stats on these politicians, people that get things wrong for their entire careers. We are should not be the people that we go, oh, well, you got to listen to the experts. You got to listen to the scientists. And so then you got this lady literally advocating that one of the biggest blunders that we've ever made we should just accept it and go, all right, everyone gets a pass on the blunder. That's fucking lunacy. All right, talk amongst yourselves for a second. Let me check in, see if uh, if Robert's coming on. If not, we'll have, to, we'll have to rebook him. I want those business tips. And I want to find out with the new sheath winter wear. Because let me tell you, last year, those, uh, those long johns were a fucking game changer. Use promo code RYM. Load up now. 20% off. You get yourself sheath long johns. Uh, when you go biking, skiing, anything else, usually I used to wear like shitty pajama pants under my waterproof pants, but now the last season I was just wearing the long johns and it felt like I was wearing nothing at all. Just like, uh, the neighbor, what's the guy's name in the Simpsons? All right, moving on. Got one more topic here and then, uh, it's going to be time to get some history lesson. Let's take a couple comments before, uh, before we delve into this. What do we got here? Taking... The Liberty with Sam. Robbie, what do you think of Lex Freeman, Kanye interviewing, shilling for shekels, naivety, hypocrisy, or cognitive dissonance? All right. Firstly, took some shit from uh, people in the comments on YouTube for the Dave Smith Kanye episode for not doing homework. And you people are wrong, mistaken, and I guess are a little bit too obsessed with anti-Semitism. I'll just say it. Uh, cause I did do my homework. I absolutely did. I went to check out these interviews. Uh, I probably actually spent a couple hours on it and I deciphered that this was meaningless, unimportant and uninteresting. I watched a considerable amount of Kanye in multiple different settings, which I actually didn't really want to do, but I was like, all right, this is the big news of the week. Let's go check it out. And I deciphered after doing my homework that it was boring uninteresting and another loud chaotic thing that the internet was just yelling about for no reason and then i even came to say that even though this is loud chaotic stupid and his comments are stupid there's no reason to have censorship so i don't understand any comment that was in that section in any capacity whatsoever you are 100 wrong and uh you know anyways i'm not some fucking nerd who likes doing his homework anyway so you can go fuck yourself but anyways Specifically with that Lex Friedman thing, I watched a little bit of it with the Jew part. And like I said, he talks too slow and he's too uninteresting. I don't care. Uh, however, it seemed to me like he was somewhat trolling because he made that Andy Kaufman comment where he says to Lex Friedman, I could keep going with this like in an Andy Kaufman like setting because Lex, Le firstly, I watched this two weeks ago, but Lex does ask him um, about why he thinks his words are harmful. He gives a little bit of pushback, not a lot of pushback, and Kanye does walk it back and go, listen, I can go for another 10 minutes in a Kanye, in, in a Andy Kaufman-like fashion. I think in some capacity, it's not that he's totally trolling. I do think that he has um, a, a gripe with... Uh, I, I think he more just has a gripe with censorship in general, and in this case, it happens to be complaining Jews, so he's just like, fuck you, you're not going to censor me. And so he's kind of pushing, he's pushing that button a little bit just to kind of be a baller and just be like, fuck you, you're not going to censor me. Um, but like I said, really not the most interesting topic to me. Uh, and yes, I did do my homework to decipher that it was not interesting or unimportant. That was me doing my homework. I sat down, I watched all of it, and I said there are more important things that I could be spending my time on because this is not that interesting. 
And I had some good jokes about it along the way. So that was me doing my homework. Back on the drum 23, Longhorns are a game changer. Where the under, uh, long, Longhorns, I think you mean Long Johns are a game changer. Wear them under jeans. You can survive most of the winter. Um, Rob and, uh, Rob and Dave hide behind the word, uh, elites instead of Jew. Hit that early life tab. I don't know what those symbols are. Um, Mike has bad knees. I agree with you. Back in the drums 23, I like the episode about uh, part of the Ponya, uh, on part of the problem about Kanye. Tim the Ancient, our hammers in the ass, a thing in the gay community. Can you get an expert on the subject on running mouth? You know what? That's a good suggestion. Maybe I can get a hammer in the asshole expert. It seems like the wrong thing that you'd want to put in there, especially with the hammer side. Unless, I, I, I guess I would understand if the hammer's like a good grip for getting the other end into someone's rectum. I can understand that. Lube it up, put that thing in, and then make sure you got the hammer on the outside so it doesn't get lost. I mean, for hundreds of years, gay people have been getting things lost inside their rectum. They've been having to go to the hospital. Best joke I've ever seen about this is... Um, Greg Stone. Dad with names. Greg Stone, absolutely hilarious comedian. He's got... Uh, there aren't too many jokes out there that you want to listen to more than once. I must have listened to him tell the story maybe 20 times at LOL when he was getting up. I, I mean, I've never laughed so hard at a story. He's got a story about uh, working in a hospital and uh, people with things stuck inside the rectums. I don't know if he ever got that on tape and put that out, but if you can find it, it is a worthwhile watch. And if not, um, you know, he's a funny comic, so you guys can go check him out. All right, moving on. What was I trying to talk about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why you were talking about the Kanye thing. Because I have this article up right here. G Jewish leaders call on GOP candidates to reject anti-Semitic comments. Uh, and isn't this a wonderful strategy by Jewish leaders where they're like, people seem not to like us, so what we're going to do is we're going to complain louder. This is the only way that Jews seem to know how to get their way is by complaining. And so they're taking the opportunity that while people are discussing anti-Semitism to try and shame it and complain it away, and could there be bigger nonsense than what this article claims? So let's take let's take a look at this. Jewish leaders call on GOP candidates to reject anti-Semitic comments. And because uh, the Pelosi's are getting attacked, because of Kanye, it's proof of the fact that there's growth in anti-Semitism in this country and that Republicans are ill-equipped, are ill-equipped for this thing that only they can see and claim is growing that they're unequipped, like what, how, how much is it growing and what specifically needs to be done and why is it that the Republicans can't do it? None of these things are going to be answered. We've got world leaders and their houses are being broken into because things that are Republicans are saying, what do the Republicans say? How did it inspire these people? Are the Republicans even responsible for what ran, one random crazy person does? These questions should not be asked because we don't live in a scientific world. We don't live in a world based on evidence, facts, or reason. It's based off of Jewish complaining. And so in this case, if there's an opportunity to complain and then get more Democrats in power and I guess get more money to Israel, then that's what they're going to do. All right, let's give a read to some of the comments within this absolutely bogus article. Here we go. Jewish leaders raised alarms Monday about anti-Semitism they say is increasingly normalized in American politics after a series of bigoted comments from associates or supporters of GOP candidates and growing calls for them to firmly reject such rhetoric. All right. It's on the rise. Just take our word for it. It's on the rise and it's the fault of the GOP. In Nevada, the campaign of GOP Senate nominee Adam Laxalt on Monday denounced anti-Semitic tweets linked to a recent finding 
a recently fired staffer who said Jews are part of a cult rather than a religion. But in Georgia, Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker did not publicly reject a show of support from Yee. That's all it takes to be guilty is he wasn't loud enough in rejecting Kanye. Maybe it wasn't on his radar. Maybe he doesn't care enough. But the fact that he didn't instantly, this is like you're a racist if you're not anti-racist. It's the same logic. If you don't hop on the opportunity to yell at somebody over the comments that they've made, it's clear that you're actually anti-Semitic. The rapper, formerly known as Kanye West, who has made a slew of comments attacking Jewish people in recent weeks, including a tweet threatening he would go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. Democratic-aligned Jewish people, Jewish groups, also on Monday criticized uh, a Dr. Oz, the Senate candidate in Pennsylvania, for planning to appear at a rally this weekend with GOP governatural, now I don't know that word, uh, nominee Doug Mastriano. Mastriano has unsettled Jewish, um, Jewish Democrats and Republicans alike with his extremist ties and comments about his Jewish opponents. So once again, it's just a loose connection to somebody's loose claims. What specifically did this other guy Mastriano say? Uh, I don't know, but people are upset about it. It's unsettled. That, that's how flagrant what the guy said was. It unsettled Jewish Democrats. And what specifically did the guy say? I don't know, but Oz is loosely attached to this person's loosely, loose claims. There you go. That's the rock iron clad proof of the fact that the Republicans are overwhelmingly anti-Semitic or allowing anti-Semitism to, um, to proliferate. All right, and here's a random quote from the article that I specifically chose to make it look worse and prove my point. Jack Rosen, and you guys can go look him up on Twitter. That is the resident complainer-in-chief. President of the advocacy group American Jewish Congress said in a seeming rise in anti-Semitic rhetoric and politics is disturbing to all of us and argued that on the right, we don't see the kind of leadership it's going to take to stop the growth of this kind of anti-Semitic hatred. Let me re-read that line. We don't see the kind of leadership it's going to take to stop the growth of this kind of anti-Semitic hatred. So this puts forward that the biggest thing that we have to address, or one of the crucial issues that all voters should be concerned about, is the supposed growth of anti-Semitism in this country. And then we should just take the word of this person, that this growth exists, and that the leadership on the right is unqualified to deal with it, but the leadership on the left can. It's all nonsense talk. Uh, and then I think I already cl uh, commented on this. Uh, and then I got one more, and then we'll get uh, Gary on. U.S. Chief Justice Roberts pauses fight over Trump tax returns. This is so classic, like, news cycle. I haven't commented on this, but for about two weeks, they kept talking about how Donald Trump finally lost his case. We're finally going to see all these tax returns. And then it, I didn't even comment on it because I was like, all right, let's actually see it happen. It's months of, like, there's all these news stories about they're finally going to bust Trump. We got this uh, investigation in New York City. We've got the, uh, the, the, the the FBI. They're taking all of this. It's like a constant noise machine of, look, we're going to get him. Look, the guy's a criminal. Look, he's back in the news. We're going to get him. And then all of it just seems to fall apart. So in this case, they're talking about forever that they're going to get his tax returns. And then suddenly, at the last second, U.S. Chief Justice Roberts pauses it. I got to say, before I die, I hope they put it out because now I'm curious. I'm not saying that it's the right thing. I'm not saying that he should have to put out his tax returns. I'm not saying that he should be off the hook from his tax returns. I don't really have an opinion on this. It's kind of like the Kanye thing, which, guess what? I did my homework on this one to also go, hey, it's not really something I want to have an opinion on. You don't have to have an opinion on everything. That's really, that's a stupid approach to life, is going that even if I don't have strong opinions, I have to pretend like I do. That's a bad approach. T take the things you're actually passionate about, research those, and then share valuable opinions that you actually thought about. Or in my case, be open about the fact that you're kind of being nonsensical and funny sometimes, and then other times let people know that you're actually well-researched. 
The idea that, like, uh, it, all right, I'm, I'm ranting, and Gary's here. He's got actual information for us. Um, so let's get into it. Let me, uh, let me make some changes to my screen here. What's going on, Gary? What's up, Robbie? Oh, wait, hold on one second. I got to change my sound setting. Give me one second. Sure. All right, you there? Yeah, I'm here. How about you? I got you I got doing? my copy of the book, so I don't mess up the title again. A Twisted Beautiful. History of the United <laughs> States. How was it uh, with Tom Woods yesterday? That's very cool you got on the show. Oh, it was great. We had a nice discussion. Charlie, my co-author, was on. It was great. And we're actually, it's a second episode today is going to drop. So tune in. It's going to be good. And you're mentioned in the second episode. Oh, nice. What, uh, what do you guys cover? Oh, shit. Everything from, you know, colonial era history to crazy pandemic stuff to you name it, funding for World War II, whether we won World War II, which is another kind of controversial take I Ooh. have in the book. Wait, you got to start there. Give me that one. Did we not win World War II? No. All right. I mean, think, <laughs> simply, think about it. Uh, the objective was to preserve liberal democracy and Western democracies from totalitarianism and fascism and Japanese militarism and all this stuff. At the end of the war, what do we have? We trade out one terrible totalitarian regime for another that actually conquered and controlled uh, even vaster stretches of the world for another 50 years. That's a great win. In fact, if you want proof of that, Winston Churchill gave a speech in 1946. It's known as the Iron Curtain speech, but its title is really the Sinews of Peace. He made, he made it in, New in Missouri in 1946, and he basically says, if you read the text, he's like, well, fuck, we, I guess we lost. You know? <laughs> and, and no one even mentions that part. And no one, I, I can only imagine being there in like Fulton, Missouri, and it's a year after the war slaughter of millions, tens of millions of people. And this guy gets up, the prime, former prime minister by that time, and he goes, well, I guess we lost and <laughs> we have to fight now Soviet communism. And it's like, what was this for? Did no one get up and say, what, what, what was this for? Um, as much as I hate war, I do love war movies. And mm -hmm. there's a great scene in uh, Padden. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Yes. Um, but there's a great scene in Padden where it's the end of the war and they're celebrating with the Russians. Uh, and mm -hmm. the Russians are on the floor, like they're doing like their kicky dances. And one of the generals comes over and Padden just goes, uh, he basically says, you know, I'm supposed to be fighting you now. And right. and they basically go, well, let's let's reserve it for tonight so that we can celebrate. But Patton kind of had this thing where it's like, I shouldn't be leaving. You guys are still the enemy. I don't know why we're calling this a war. Um, and I, I don't know that that happened in actual history, but it's a great movie scene. Well, no, but it is an accurate kind of accounting for what Patton felt. He did urge he wanted uh, Eisenhower to give him authorization to move his armies eastward against the Soviets. So pretty, that's all pretty mm -hmm. wild. So I, uh, um, the other day, um, I didn't watch the whole movie. I basically just fast forward and watched all the war scenes. Um, mm -hmm. But Netflix put out All Quiet on the uh, Western Front, which I believe is also a classic book and an accounting of the horrors of World War One. Mm -hmm. uh, before we get into the movie, do you want to tell us a little bit of the history of that actual book? Uh, just uh, Eric Mark wrote the book. He had uh, he was a German soldier. And he had that experience. And so he became an immediate pacifist after the war. I think he was wounded as well. He joined the fight quite late uh, in 1918. And yet, and he was a very young man at the time. He was in, still in his teens, maybe 17, 18. And that's how desperate the Germans were conscripting anyone they could to get off to the front. And he saw firsthand the just absolute horror and the catastrophe that was trench warfare. 
at the very tail end of the war. So he became a peace advocate after that. And then the book really, it, the book was amazing in the sense too, that it was fiction that had an impact on history and politics because people after its release really saw a, a dramatic representation of the war from both sides. And it wasn't, it wasn't really a, it's not, it, I don't know if the movie, cause I haven't seen it shows how non-tribal it was like the, his, his account is just like, this is, horrible. This is hell on earth and it needs to be avoided at all costs. And there's also a big emphasis in the book that it's really poor people and who are going off to get to die for all of these moneyed interests and the governments who are just in a sense capitalizing. I don't want to use that word in reference to capitalism, but capitalizing on their grief and terror and death ultimately. I thought uh, um, building on that, I thought some of the like fascinating things to watch in the movie was you could see how pride suckered young kids into fighting. There's like mm -hmm. a great scene where all of his friends are going to war and they just, I mean, I could understand being dumb in 18 and not actually knowing what it looks like and just right. feeling like, well, I'm not going to be the one pussy that stays home while my friends go to fight and them really harping on the emotions of 18 year olds. Like, do you want to be men? Um, and then watching kind of the distance between the leaders who are fighting these wars and the actual people in the trenches and how they're kind of making decisions off of like, even cause it's funny. I was watching the movie. I was like, this is great. And I was like, I know nothing about like, I, I have a very, I, a very loose memory of what they taught us in school about world war one. So I was like, I got to dig in a little bit. But then I kind of laughed at the beginning of the war, which um, it, because I, you know, I, I kind of look at the situation in Russia, Ukraine uh, and the ancient thing about, you know, understanding history so it doesn't repeat itself. Hmm. But there's something fascinating that the war started over a single person being assassinated. And if you can just take a step back through the lens of like history and just go in, well, who cares? Like, I understand. <laughs> you know what I mean? I understand yeah. like like leader step. I'm go, well, we can't be assassinating each other, but. We're, there's a faulty analysis here of people's pride being f like on the line that somehow a single murder can escalate into millions of people being dead. Yeah, although, you know, the, the murder of Franz Ferdinand on uh, June 28, 1914 is just the spark. It was right. a tinderbox box before then because all these other movements, nationalism was so enormous. And it, it's kind of an irony too. One of the major reasons that these young men were going off to war and they, we have film footage, obviously it's dated and kind of old and there's no audio. We have film footage of French boys just piling on trains to go off and go to fight. And they're all cheering and they're, you know, it's like the idealistic uh, nationalist kind of thing. And they're all cheering. And one of the reasons is too, because Europe hadn't had a major war since 1871 with the Franco-Prussian war, essentially. So this generation was schooled by government and society to almost treat war as this heroic debt of sacrifice. Right. Very much alike, along lines of like, remember you had that Rudyard Kipling poem about white man's burden, that they were going off to civilize all of these different places through their colonial activities. And the obviously the country, the European country that had the most colonies and was able to spread its culture and civilization was going to be superior and if that meant war ultimately to determine in Europe and then beyond who was superior, well, then they were willing to go and fight. It's a, it was a real indoctrination campaign for decades. Isn't it wild how, uh, I guess, just how effective propaganda can be that if Amazing. you 
give people I, I guess as human like if you look at it almost from like a matrixy perspective we all want to find value in our lives so if someone gives you a recipe and say hey this is what it's all about and this is the sacrifice that i'm i'm i'm, I'm using this language redeem your soul but basically no. give value to your existence it's wild how i guess how that really just captures people yeah that was huge uh, a lot of my studies in my uh previous, well, I should say in my academic life was on French history. So what's really amazing is that people think of France as a Catholic country, but that's really old. By the turn of the century, they were officially secularists. Like they were very anti-Catholic. They were condemning the church. And in place, I know you and Dave talk about this a lot on part of the problem is like, there's this kind of natural impetus toward finding what you said, value, meaning, and cause behind one's life. And that's often found in religion and worship. And so what the French state, the third Republic, it was a Republic at the time did was supplant the church as the main institution for allegiance with the state. And the, you can look at newspaper articles and the rhetoric and all the images that people were flooded with of the noble Frenchman who's going off to Morocco to civilize the Mohammedan and the Senegalese who are getting, are being taught French in uh, Dakar and all the French are like, yay. And now if only we can get back Alsace and Lorraine, or I'm sorry, if we can only, uh, get, yeah, get back Alsace and Lorraine, these territories from Germany, well then we're just going to, it's going to be a fait accompli. We're going to be emergent, just like in the old Napoleon days. It was real a sickness. It was real sick. Um, so you're saying on the French side, they just had it in their head. If we can take these territories from the Germans, we're just showcasing we're superior and that's all it was. Yeah. And in fact, they weir use weird terms. The commentary at the time is like the, the French state is emasculated. Like they got ca castrated, in a sense, by the old Franco-Prussian War. And the Germans did do everything back then, like under Bismarck to humiliate the French. Like they signed the treaty that creates the big German empire at Versailles. Right. They kind of stick it in their nose or stick their nose in it, excuse me. And so from that point on, it's like an obsession for the French people and for the French state Get these territories back. Okay. And then if we jump, uh, I know this is just me with ADD. So if we jump all the way yeah. to the end of the war with okay. Germany uh, losing it. So I was a little confused why Germany, at least from the perspective of the movie, and then we'll go back. But from the perspective of the movie, it seemed like with the trench warfare, you just had an endless stalemate where a lot of people were just going to continuously die because neither side really had the technology, I guess, to break through the other one's trenches. And so mm -hmm. you're just putting kids into holes to die at the hands of the kids in the other holes. So why did Germany finally concede to France even to with what, what seems like bad terms? Right. It was a it was a real war of attrition. They were just trying right. to exhaust one another. And that's why they became by 1916, 1917. That's why they became so desperate. They started using mustard gas and all these terrible and really powerful artillery. Uh, the Germans went so far as, you know, the Germans were responsible for getting Lenin on a train to get him into the Soviet Union to get the Soviet, successfully to get, I'm sorry, to get uh, Russia out of the war and create the Soviet Union. And that was indeed subterfuge. They were willing, they were getting desperate. Um, interesting to note there about like why the Americans came in. The Americans came in at that precise moment when Russia was leaving the war. And so one and a lot of Europeanists, in, including uh, uh, well Thaddeus Russell, who we both know, he's arguing, and I think it's a very convincing argument that what we did and so, see if this sounds familiar is we just prolonged the conflict. Right. 
Whereas both sides were basically at a stalemate in 1917 and Germany had momentum because their Eastern front was going to be. And over. I heard that they were also being very successful with the U-boats. Like they were actually that, turning the tides of the war because uh, people couldn't restock. They kind of just overtook the oceans. Yeah. A uh, couple things there. Um, the U-boats kind of were, were designed to mitigate British naval superiority. So Britain has a surface Navy. It's huge. It's the largest in the world. So the Germans built an, a submarine Navy. And so, yeah, that was hurting supplies. Uh, the Germans were, although they were suffering from Winston Churchill early on in the war, in, uh, created a hunger blockade over the North Sea in Germany. So they were going toward, talk about all uh, all possible resorts. The, the British early on in the war resorted to trying to starve out the German population. And they mined the North Sea. So what's what's the problem with a mine? Well, it stops everything. A, a mine doesn't say, oh, this is a food shipment or medicine. Uh, it just explodes instead of it doesn't say, oh, this is a warship. So now I go off, you know. So, yeah. And then um, to your point about why Germany eventually capitulated, it was essentially because Germany was left alone within the war to fight against Britain, France and the United States. For the most part, Austria had already been essentially knocked out of the war. That was their main uh, ally. And so being exhausted from all these years, remember that, as I said before, the United States doesn't enter until effectively the summer, uh, late fall of 1917. I mean, it was exhausting economically. The German economy was in ruins. They were desperate. So that's why they capitulated. All right. So one of the interesting things I came across when I was just, you know, doing a, a quick skim of kind of what was going on with World War One. Mm -hmm. uh, in your opinion, did we enter the war because we had to bail out basically large loans to the French and like our bankers realized, oh, our yes. side's going to lose and we're about to lose a shit ton of money. Is there accuracy to that? There's total accuracy in that. Moreover, we know from after the war, in fact, during the Depression, Congress convened a special commission to investigate what was going on with the funding for why the United States got in the war in the first place. And it was headed by this North Dakota senator named Gerald Nye. So it's called the Nye Commission. And they uncovered and unearthed all this indicting evidence, both to Wilson himself and his administration and the people in Congress, how much they were influenced by J.P. Morgan and the big bankers. Because once you start financing one side of the war, and it looks as though, especially after Russia is on the brink of capitulating and getting out of the war, and Germany has this advantage. Well, if Germany takes over, all that capital is put in danger. Right. Yeah. So bankers were constantly on Wilson's case to get into the war, foment something and, you know, get ships out into the Atlantic. So they start the U-boats start sinking them so that we can get the American people on our side. And by the way, FDR just does the exact same thing 20 years later. All right. So, and he was very big on that. Then there was um, the, the, the Nye Commission actually called in the founders of the DuPont Corporation to testify. And they testified and they had evidence to back it up. Du the DuPont Corporation made around $400 million off creating war material, uh, ammunition, you name it, for the war. So they were, there was definite war profiteering. And you might wonder, well, why, why did the Nye Commission stop? Well, sure enough, tribalism and partisanship set in. Nye was a Democrat, but once he started 
like uncovering stuff on the God Woodrow Wilson, all these people like uh, Carter Glass started freaking out and they closed the Nye Commission. So to, to, uh, just to t- take it a step back. So yeah, we have um, wars coming to an end. Firstly, it's a different time period in my head that I guess governments aren't just printing their own money. Uh, at Central- well, they were. And so what? So they went to the max on that, and then the banks had to actually lend them. It just seems like a different financial structure than the current endless printing. This is why World War One is like the burp of hell on earth that inaugurates all of the evils with which we still deal with today. And that is, before the war, the the countries of the world almost were united and univocal on having a gold standard. But as the cost becomes so enormously prohibitive for fighting this war that they thought wasn't going to last for very long, but ends up just perduring forever, they start shifting. The the British shift off the gold standard. The French shift off the gold standard. The Germans shift off the gold standard. So this is the inauguration of fiat financing. And then therefore, it never goes away. You know, it's like Robert Hidd's ratchet effect. Once you open the font to fiat poison, it never retracts because governments realize, shit, I can finance all this stuff without onerous taxation. I can just essentially delay it with taxation without representation, and that's through inflationary policy. All right. So I get that I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm a juice. I get interested in the financial aspects of this. You're turning so, Kanye on yourself. <laughs> um, so the U.S. steps in, the bankers push it, and they realize we've lent too much money to have our side lose. Mm-hmm. U.S. steps into the war, changes the tide because now all of a sudden you got fresh legs. Germans finally go, all right, we, we have to end this thing. Yeah. Um, from what I understand uh, is that the agreements that were made to end that war, U.S. actually walked away with a big victory that we ended up kind of being the reserve currency of the world and kind of set up uh, like a new financial world order that was very favorable to the U.S. So we almost kind of, in a sense, won the war from a financial perspective. But then from what I understand, we put s- such horrendous costs on the Germans that we basically right. set up World War II because we fucked them. So I'll hand it back to you if maybe you can yeah. actually lay Slight out. Slight correction. Uh, it, yeah. The U.S. doesn't, the dollar doesn't become the reserve currency after World War One. That's during Bretton Woods in 1944 after World War II or right. toward the tail end of World War II. But the United States was placed in a very advantageous position economically because one, Wilson always wanted, because he wasn't satisfied with being president of the United States, he sort of wanted to be a major world figure. So many of his drives to get American boys on the ground in Europe was so that he'd have a seat at Versailles, which is where the treaty negotiations to end the war took place in 1919. Now, the cost of that, of course, which really isn't often calculated by the politicians of any era, was 150,000 men. 150,000 Americans died in World War One in a war that in no way, shape, or form it was the United States in danger of anything during that war, and yet they were sacrificed so that Wilson could have a seat at Versailles. Once he gets there, he sets up a new construction and political system within Europe that certainly just it's meant to destroy Germany. Germany is seen as not only the main antagonist of the war, even though that's not historically true, but all of the war guilt was foisted upon Germany. So they had to cede those French territories back to France, right? They get humiliated because they have to take, they have to give up all their colonies and hand them over to places like, or nations like Japan in the Pacific, to the French, to the British. 
And the German people then, oh, oh by the way, the uh, they're not allowed to produce uh, automobiles. They're, uh, they're not allowed to. Uh, so that's why, in fact, BMW stopped making cars. They started making motorcycles at that time. Mm. Um, so, and then the French were able to, and the allies were able to, if they didn't make enormous war indemnity payments, the French could occupy in the treaty, certain areas, which were industrial, industrially wealthy, and they eventually do. So all of that spurred, of course, the nationalist sentiment in the post-war years that Versailles was evil. Hitler plays upon this. He talks about Versailles all the time, that the international syndicate, again, somewhat headed by Jews, was responsible for killing and, uh, and maiming the, the German nation. So they play off that. Um, and then what was, cause th this is also, now we're really going Kanye here. Um, okay. but what was the Rothschild tie in, I guess, to, of additional war funding? Cause from what I understand, like, weren't they kind of funding both sides or something along those lines? As far as I know, cause I didn't look particularly right. into the Rothschild funding. Um, but I, I do have a, a pretty good quote from a book here. I'll share with you in a moment, but, and, and that talks about like, uh, fascism and war, uh, war economy and centralized planning in the United States is from Tom, Tom DiLorenzo, but I'll hold off on that. But anyway, the, the Rothschilds, yes, they were essentially the old Medici of the 20th, well, actually for centuries, and they were financing both sides. And they were also had heavy, from what I can recall, a lot of influence in make, making sure that Switzerland was this kind of neutral power where their banking and holdings could not just take place, but could be safe. But did they actually, in any ways, I guess, uh, provoke or push war, or were they just kind of happy to fund it? I'm not sure, but I'd have to look into that right. uh, about what they did in terms of direct influence. Of course, any financial family of that power and magnitude has incredible political sway and social power. So I, it wouldn't surprise me to, that there aren't a lot of books and, and research on their influence. All right. So now let's uh, last thing. So just uh, I know that part of the stupidity of the war was that everyone had treaties. And so like it was like you said, a ticking time bomb where if one person fought, everyone had to fight. Um, sure. So lay lay on us, I guess, the stupidity that led to World War One, the stupidity that led to World yeah. War One. Well, just a lot of stupid things. going on. I mean, it, um, the major causes they're they're traditionally cited are true. Imperialism was one. Namely, that you have this race for colonization to right. extract all these raw materials to fund the industrial engines of these company or these countries, and when you fuel imperialism with nationalism, any time that one country, let's say Germany, makes inroads in South America or in the Pacific, it's immediately in the newspapers that what is the French Third Republic going to do about this? They've just taken Southwest Africa, as if anyone really cared about Southwest Africa uh, at the, at the time. But it became such a, a nationalistic cause and people were spurred on and it became a, a, quite the religion. Now, what that, I, that's so interesting to me because that exactly it's like if you're looking at the risk for reward of empire, yeah. that's it. It's like, yeah, I guess imperialism might have some profits up until you end up in a war. But it's only naturally you're going to end up in a war because if you're running around the globe claiming territories, other people are going to do the same thing. And then you're right. going to have to fight them for it. It's just a bad model. Yeah. And then and then the main communist objection. Now, good communists are good on being anti-imperial, but they say it's a capitalistic enterprise because 
well, capitalists right. and industrialists are extracting these raw materials. There's nothing inherently capitalistic at all about imperialism. Capitalism requires mutual cooperation and exchange and voluntary exchange. Whereas really what was fueling the imperial movement was corporatism and a kind of early nascent uh, fascism because the government, what, what are the industrialists doing? They're like, well, in the past, the British East India Company would go to India and have to negotiate with some Pashtun herder and then gain uh, trade rights into Goa or Pondicherry or Bombay, right? But that takes a lot of time. You got to learn the language. What's easier is we just fund a politician in parliament and we use the British Navy to go bomb the shit out of them or at least threaten to do so until they open the port for us. There's not, there's nothing capitalistic about that. That's, that's corporatist. So, but it was all fueled and people really, I have to say one thing though, because there was a lot of um, prosperity in large part because of the gold standard and because of emergent second industrial revolution benefits People saw their governments as being very effective. I mean, this is the era before World War I where you have the beautification of all these cities. It's where Paris turns from a dump into the beautiful metropolis that it is. Vienna. And this is the Vienna of like Mises' time. And Louis von Mises is walking around Vienna and everybody was walking around Vienna going, holy shit, this is gorgeous. There's cafes, the architecture, the music. It's just everything's good. And then World War I ended that with just the most resounding thud ever. <laughs> All right. So to uh, to close this out, well, some of the just the, the big themes are one, like you can just see the power for humanity of being more decentralized uh, because the centralization does lead to just random leaders, pride and vanity, being Thank able you. to make horrible decisions for massive amounts of people. Right. Um, any other closing thoughts or things you think the uh, run your mouth listeners should be aware of, of I, uh, from World War One? Yeah. The biggest thing, too, is that. We have to remember that both in the World War I and World War II eras, the United States, we tend to think of the United States as being this beacon of, of democracy and freedom. No, there were major powers, including politicians and economists and corporate interests, who were all on board the fascist total, uh, sort of command and control type of economy. I told you I'd read this thing. This is from Tom DiLorenzo's book, How Capitalism Saved America. So he says this. As late as the 1930s, many elites admired something even more totalitarian than Italian fascism, and that was Soviet central planning. So as the Soviet Union is going up, everyone's like, oh, this is, this is good. They're able to control the economy. He says, there was an economist named Stuart Chase, and he considered central planning to be such an important aspect of any economic system that he actually scoffed at the Soviets for believing that they, not the, not the Americans, had invented the planned economy. They had their own, in America, they had their own 10-year plans for confiscation of private property, uh, collectivization along Soviet lines. So the idea that this is a phenomenon that's only in Russia, the Soviet Union, and in parts of Europe is just totally ahistorical. All right. Dude, another incredible segment. I look forward to the next uh, time that I come across something and I'm like, I know nothing about it because this is all better right, than buddy. school. That's all the shit I didn't get. <laughs> Twisted history of the United States. Everyone should pick this up. This is my plain reading. I'm slowly working through it. Sally, I don't read it at home anymore. I got to like, like block off because I keep like reading the newspaper every day and like digging yeah. into things. But uh, you, you are book. Great toilet book. <laughs> no, it's my it's my plane book. I dig in on planes. Um, so everyone, go check it out. It's on Amazon. That's the easiest place to find yeah, it, right? Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. A Twisted History of the United States. Always a fun segment. Look forward to having you back. Take care, buddy. Bye.
Uh, and in my efforts to make a smooth transition here, I managed to get Bobby the Bank right when he left. I, I, I was sitting there. I was watching him the whole time. I was like, I got to get Bobby the Bank onto the show. It's the CEO. But you know what's great about him not sitting in his seat is we get to see how dirty his living room is. It's not that dirty. I mean, compared to what my living room looks like, that's a pretty clean living room. It looks like he's got a nice blanket on a chair. That that looks like a good chair for watching TV. And what's nice about it is that it's just one single chair, so you don't have to watch TV with your loved one. You don't have to have your loved one sitting there asking you all sorts of uh, questions, getting into the this and the that, asking questions about the plot, trying to cuddle up. And you're like, I'm, I'm actually enjoying the show. You got to cuddle up and do this shit when it's TV that I don't even really like. All right, well, here he is, Bobby the Bank, hustling back. I transferred over. Robert? I don't know if you're... Can you uh, I can hear you now. I've, I've been, I spent some time to trash your living room while you were out. <laughs> you did? You spent some time what? Uh, just trashing your setup. I, I like that chair. I need a comfy chair like that. The one that's uh, in the background with the blanket on it. <laughs> that's where I do my meditation, which I did not do this morning. Um, I woke up late and I, didn't, I, I i totally missed the time zones i, I thought it was 10 30 my time and it's all it good said 10 you and i are both the, we're the same person robert we're, we're <laughs> in the robert name well we, we mess up on time zones it's the way well, it's the, the way it goes but it all worked out you know I've, I've been plugging that i was gonna have you on all show it's been i've been teasing it teasing it teasing it and now you're here in the flesh thank you for being so patient and flexible so uh it's good to see you you're always very positive youtube strike champion that's right. They well, they're they're uh, they seem to be laying off me right now. I feel like with Elon Musk coming into Twitter, the uh, tech censors. I feel like they're uh, they're sitting back a little bit. I was messaging with Kyle Dunnigan, the you know the YouTuber last night, and he's great. He is great. I was telling him you're one of the all time greats, and he was asking me to you know do I want to sponsor this Thursday's ad, and I was like. Could you make a funny ad for us? Which is kind of redundant because he always right. makes a funny ad, but I was like times are a little funky you know i need a super funny ad and then i and then i emailed him back i was like or genuine make it either genuine or funny or both and then i was like and you have to come on my podcast wow (laughs) you're getting you're getting uh you're really laying on the the negotiations thick i'm i'm reading this book the steve jobs book and he was and it was talking about not only was he this great you know thought thinker whatever um innovator but he's also a great negotiator and he did some really crazy deals. I'm at the, at the park part where he's uh, negotiating for Pixar with Disney, and they, you know, Disney was just trying to like railroad him and bulldoze him and take right. you know take credit for everything. And he's like, "We made the movie," you know. And when when Pixar went public, it, his net worth he made more off Pixar than he did off Apple. He went he, he was worth one point two billion dollars after the IPO, which makes me think about Ticket Sheath Public, baby boy. There you go. I've I've read a lot of negotiating uh, books because uh, I'm I'm actually a big old softy, and yeah, so I, I I need the mechanics, and uh, I'm curious to know what his general negotiating strategy is. Maybe we could talk about negotiations a little bit here. Well, we can we can try, but it's right. like having. Le- I mean, he he had leverage, and he waited until he had the leverage to present, you know, a, a equitable offer for both him and Disney, so that they right. both win 
but you know, in, in, instead of him basically losing and Disney winning, he, he was like, I'm going to put up the money to fund these next three movies or five movies. And it was right after toy, toy story was made that this all was kind of happening and toy, toy story was made and, and Pixar made it, but Disney's taking credit for it. And it was the highest grossing film of that year. It beat like Armageddon and like these huge movies. And, um, so he went, then he went public and then he came back to Michael Eisner, who he said was kind of a dick ultimately, which is, it's, this book is like a tell all he, there's no you know, stone left unturned, even when it comes to Steve jobs himself and what a dick he was. Um, it, it's a very thorough. My, book. My basic negotiation strategy, and yeah. I warn people that if you have an asset that you can only sell once, this strategy does not work. <laughs> but what works for me is, and I just find that this is the easiest way to do it. You come up with the price tag that it's worth it for you to do something, that if you're not getting that dollar amount, the answer is no. And then if you get it, and let's say there was more money on the table, who cares? That means you provided more value, yeah. and it means that you'll get a repeat order, or it means yep. you got someone that's happy with you, and you still got what you were looking for. So that's how you kind of keep, like, I don't I don't look at assets like, what's the most I can get for it, as much as what's the price tag that I want for it? And then also, when you do it that way, firstly, I think you open up doors by providing value, and you're mm -hmm. also, you're more efficient with, like, you, you, you're controlling it. You're getting what you want, and you're also, if you're, if your pricing is then something that creates value, you can be more efficient, right? You're not like, I'm looking for like volume and strikes. I'm not looking for like grand slams of uh, getting the max, but that only works like, like for me doing a comedy gig, you know, that works because it's not like I'm just doing one gig on the year. You know what I mean? Like I'm trying yeah. to be, you get what I'm saying? Well, part of what he did was like, he wanted to make the Apple more affordable, whereas the guy uh, Scully that took over as CEO when he was ousted, they basically jacked the prep and took their whole market share from, they were at 16% market share when jobs left and it went down to 4%. And it's because all Scully was interested in was immediate profits and not the long-term market share of Apple versus you know IBM and Microsoft and all that. So that's a part like, even though we, you know, we sell underwear and we're not necessarily negotiating in a way we are because we need to make it affordable for the masses to, and for more people to buy it. And if you price, you know, so many of them out of the market or whatever affordability, then that's a, not a good negotiating tactic. You know, it's like just setting the price, it, like right. you were just saying is, is part of the negotiation. You got to add the value. Do you want them to come back? And right now we have a 40% off like gray Friday discount going on and our sales are up and it's like, but you could sell for double the price, practically half the product and make about just as much. But in actuality, we're making more during this time because people are buying more, you know, right. every order is like, you know, six pairs or something right now. And so it's you know it's well, all for the listeners right now <laughs> i mean use the promo code rym but throw out your drawers if you've been waiting to stock up i i don't think you've run a 40 percent off i've seen a 30 percent off but that's got to be the best discount you've run all year 
Yeah, and you can't really stack the codes right now, but you can right. just go ahead and go and get that forty percent off because it's uh, and then just put it put into the description. You let, let let them know that you're a run your mouth listener. Yeah. Uh, but honestly, it's worth stocking up if you've got that one or two pairs and you're waiting all week for when it comes back into your underwear cycle. Which I've heard from people, go stock up now, forty percent off. You're not going to beat that. Yeah, stock up on your stocking stuffers. There you I, go. So that, that, maybe that's the line I should write. Um. <laughs> Yeah, we need to talk about that. Go ahead. What I've read, I'll tell you the list of negotiating books that I've read. Please. And, I, and I, I, I need to read more. I'm not done. But I would say that the two best are, and they're opposite books, is Getting to Yes and um, Never Split the Difference. They're completely different books, but they're okay. both valuable reads. Have you read those? No, I've heard of Getting to Yes, um, but splitting the difference i haven't heard of and i'm a, I'm a self-help book guru reader i love those so so never never split the difference um his strategy is very aggressive and there's another book that i that is not as good but it's called i think uh strategies for negotiation which kind of talks about that if you're not an aggressive person and you're not comfortable with aggressive negotiating strategies like it's not genuine for you it's not really going to work um yeah. The, exactly. the Chris, I think the guy's name is Chris Voss. It's a very, it's a very aggressive style of negotiating. And it's not one that I, it's not one that I necessarily like, because it also includes um, heavy anchor points, which is kind of lying. In other words, like drastically overinflating what you're looking for, knowing that, you know, there's going to be negotiating that comes down. I kind of find you can get to the same place because people will kind of kick tires if you go, no, I already gave you the best price. So like, I almost find that that's the anchoring is not necessarily necessary. Right. What, what that book does explain very well is that it's very effective to ask how and what questions. Um, so instead of like just kind of stating your point of view, sometimes if instead you ask people like, well, how am I supposed to pay that cost if I know that I can only be seeing this on the back end mm -hmm. and stating things where the other person has to kind of explain their perspective can be a yeah. very effective uh, persuasion skill. Um, so it, th I would say that's the big takeaway from that book. I'm not putting, I'm putting it in simple terms. So it's worth reading. Uh, yeah. Never split. The, and I'm sorry. Getting to yes is kind of the opposite where it's really about, uh, more collaborative negotiation of trying to figure out like what the other person's trying to get out of it. And then really, if you can come up with creative solutions that would uh, fit their needs and make everyone happy. Yeah. I mean, another one was the art of the deal. And uh, a lot of people love Donald Trump around here as I, I and I read that book. Quite Is it a worth reading? Ago. I have it on my shelf. I haven't actually read it. It's really weird at first. It's just like, you're reading about his day-to-day -day shit and you're like, why am I reading this? But eventually it gets to I made so the deal was so good. Okay. That's the one yeah. I made that day. It was after lunch. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're following him through his day. And then he talks about all these great deals that he made with our like the city of New York where they couldn't complete the ice rink. And then he comes in and does it under budget, under time. It was the greatest deal that was ever made. But what what I took away, like the one thing I took away from that that was most important about negotiating is the whole like the you know be willing to walk away and I actually use that tactic recently because you know we buy a lot of advertising through different agencies and, and agents or whatever and, and there's this new it's like a political podcast i don't know how new it is but they're getting about 150,000 downloads um per episode which is pretty decent right 
and um, they wanted me to do they had this price scale where it's like if you buy one episode it's 2500 if you buy two episodes it's 2200 if you buy three blah 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 i had a price in mind because i'm like done kind of with all of this like if it, i'm almost tired of trying new things because it seems like we keep getting like kicked in the balls but i was like i'll pay 1500 for one episode and she's like ah we can't do that and i was like okay and but that was within you had to buy like three episodes or for to, to get this price and um it's like i'm not doing any multi show deals i want this price but if i bought six episodes i could actually get it for like 1250 or something but i'm not going to just start off with six episodes if i've never tried and you know see how the audience responds because and some audiences respond like it's stupid great and then some it's like crickets and so like this lady had 2.1 million followers on her instagram ainsley something and we did this whole thing and i don't even want to say how much i paid for it it was absurd and we got nothing not and so i'm like i'm kind of just like discouraged at the moment and i think it's partly due to the economy i keep blaming the economy i don't but and, and i hear that from various people i speak to you know like how about how down are you you know and um everyone kind of is is on in the same kind of boat it seems like i don't think many people are thriving except yo crate in the home of the 60 dollars kilo he seems to be doing very well regardless of you know economic issues but um i stuck to the deal and and i and then she's like all right we'll do it <laughs> 1500 and i was like okay good let's send him some product and then I think we should be, you know, doing a, a show with them soon. And just like uh, the prices were so jacked up with YouTubers over the past two years because of people were willing to pay it. And I guess it was paying off and it was paying off for us too. And since I guess people are tightening up their pocketbooks right now, when we do these advertisements and sometimes it doesn't pay off and you're like, well, I just, threw $30,000 away, LOL, or something to that effect. Yeah, well, part of it, you're going to see big holiday seasons, and then also when people are coming to the website with the 40%. I mean, I'm sure you're good on traffic, but it's not always that directional. But obviously, it's nice when you have those shows, like mine, where people use the yeah. promo code, and then they just go, you're able to just go, all right, I'm doing well with that guy. Yeah, and we and like I tell you, I'm pretty honest with most of, uh, of our influencers. Like, okay, you're a little short, you're doing it's close enough, you know, like if, but if, if we make a dollar for dollar ROI, I'm pretty satisfied. And even if we come to 80% or something, I'm like, okay, this will work. Cause you know, a lot of people aren't using the code. Look at this piece of the ceiling is falling off right here. You know, when, when you just shipping. pointed like that, it looked like you were in like some mini, I mean, it was just like a camera trick, but it looked like you were like in a mini house that you could just like <laughs> touch your roof from sitting down. <laughs> Oh my God. All um, right. So I think, I think today's takeaway should be read self-help books. You know, yeah. if you got holes in your game, you can, you can pick up a book and you can try and shore up those holes. I haven't been doing enough of that as of late, but I used to, sometimes when I was real depressed, I like going to a bookstore and walking around and just being like, I don't know shit. Like there can yeah. be so much information that can solve my problems. Like, why am I feeling down? Like right. I haven't like, there could be answers. There's a thousand books in this bookstore on every topic. You're telling me there's not a single thing that might be able to solve my problem. I, I'm telling you, I really, I used to, uh, and and I would buy, I used to like doing that at the Strand. That's like a big bookstore in Manhattan. 
Nice. And I don't think I've read a book in over a year, but you know, it was it, it was helpful when I was doing it. Um, reading Atomic Habits right now, which is another good book. I mean, I mean, like if you have a bunch of bad habits, like if you smoke weed all day every day, it can help you sort of get out of that habit. And and you know, we just came off sober October, and oh, you did it right. Yeah, we totally did it. I mean, I was sober during Skankfest, which is a tough one. It was tough, and it did. It, I think it made it a little less fun, possibly. But it was all we had our moments of of grandeur when we were watching you, those fights. I gotta and, say, with the sober thing, it's just you you enjoy things differently. Yeah. So, for example, I took my dad last night to see uh, Ween at the Beacon Theater, which was great. Okay. Um, love Ween, one of my favorite bands. Oh, okay. I didn't know if it was a movie or what. <laughs> oh, they're band, right? Now I. I had a little bit too much work on my plate to be going to that concert, and I was also driving. So I didn't drink at all. But firstly, I took a single pill of uh, Yocratum. I took a Ming Da, which is excellent because it, it, it for me, can I, I'm not making health recommendations. And I would like, but every once in a while, I like taking a Ming Da. It's enough of an anxiety reducer that I'm not like, oh, I got to fucking drink. Cause that's kind of what like gets me nice. going. Okay. Is like when I'm just, I'm like claustrophobic, particularly. So, anyways, um, What's nice about it is I went to the concert for exactly two hours. I was actually, I'm going to be honest, I have ADD. For an hour, I'm like, this is the fucking greatest thing ever. And then after that mark, I'm just like, all right, I can go. Like, I, yep. I just, I did it. <sighs> but what's, ni- what's kind of nice is being sharp, getting in and out. You experience things a little bit differently, but then you wake up good to go the next morning. It's like less draining. I find that a lot of what actually makes the activities draining is like, it's the drinking or the other stuff that, because like then you're almost like, in a way, when you're drinking, for it's like you're giving things your all. You know what I mean? You're like you're putting your best energy into it. You're having a couple of drink. Like that's why you wake up the next day exhausted. But it's mm-hmm. like if you can kind of just not do that, and then you're more casual about the stuff. You know what I mean? Like it, it becomes less draining. I feel like that's the win. Is like you can still enjoy the stuff, not as much. You don't go as hard. You know what I mean? It's not like we're gonna stay out till two in the fucking morning. It's a party night. But right. like it also means that these things don't detract from your from your day as much. Yeah, you. It's like you're, you, you, like you said, you give it your all, but then you pay the price in the next day. In this way, can you buy sheath underwear in the UK? I'd like to get some for my husband. Absolutely, go ahead and get those. And we have really good shipping prices, relatively good for the UK, because uh, in some other uh, countries, it's like we have to charge more. Because but the UK is pretty pretty easy to get underwear too. And absolutely, Yo Kratom loves and Sheath Underwear loves Yo Kratom. What's up, Brandon or Ben? One of you. I've been going back and forth with Brandon. He's gonna send me some of the new extract, and I never, I didn't do any during Sober October, but I could sure use one right now. I there you like, go. I, I feel like Yo Kratom's not cheating during sobriety months. I know. I'll just say yeah. it. I agree too, and I coulda, shoulda, woulda, but I didn't. I was really clean all sober. All, Are you October. getting back to smoking weed though? I smoked on, so we actually broke on, on Halloween, broke okay. sober October, and I smoked uh, a hit, and I kind of didn't love it. Right. You know what I mean? It was like, okay, this, is, this isn't this is the greatest thing. Plus, I had to go do orders and work and stuff. So um, I didn't smoke yesterday at all, and I haven't smoked yet today, which typically by around this time, I'd be taking just a little hit. But I think um, there's one of the guys that comes, and he was a sponsor at the last uh skank fest he's selling the cbg stuff um i forget his life i forget his name wes right now. wes yeah and he um whatever he 
gave me the CBG. So it, I actually cut the weed. And so when I do smoke, if I am going to smoke, it's going to be a significantly decreased strength because I don't need 25% THC right now. I have a low tolerance. And so if I smoke, I'm going to keep it light and um, casual. Or maybe my brother was telling me, like, use it more like ceremonially. So don't just be smoking all day, every day. If you're going to do it, you know, set and setting and do it kind of like you're going to do mushrooms if you you know if you will so and that's i'm, I'm actually probably going to microdose a mushroom today i think I'm, I'm not in the best space so i don't know if i'm going to do it but i might do it anyways because i've been i've lost like 20 chess games and and i've won like three and that's an indication like to me that's your brain isn't like functioning properly <laughs> I kept playing last night. And it was like lost, 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 and and so, I was like, so I'm gonna like, fucking win. You feel and like I, you need some mushrooms to see ahead. Well, they say that it generates regenerative whatever brain cells, and and I and so TMI. But I've been I was taking Ambien to sleep during the um, there during you go October. My dreams were fucking insane. <laughs> I've been having the most wild dreams. I was playing chess with Tim Dillon, actually in the, a dream. In a dream, was he actually good? quit. No, he quit. It Did was he eat weird. The pieces? No, <laughs> I love Tim Dillon. That was this a low is, blow. This is funny. This is kind of funny. So, like October 29th, my dream was we were back at Skankfest. Shane Gillis is there and he's like chugging beers. And he's like, Who's gonna chug this fucking beer with me? And I totally was like, I'll do it. And I knew in my dream that I had like one more day to of sober October, but I was like, Are we? whatever day of the month it was. And I totally cheated because it was Shane Gillis. And he was like, who's going to chug these beers with me? So I fucking chugged a beer with Shane Gillis. And like, I was hanging out, not hanging out with Conor McGregor, but yeah, I was at a party with him. Like, Dude, oh, you, these... you have great dreams. Yeah, I've been having, I, I need, dreams. I need like inception to start getting into your dreams. Your, your dreams are more exotic than mine. When I go to bed now, I kind of try to remember last night's dream so I can. Ooh, so you can hop back in. into it. That's yeah. some trippy shit. That's some manifestation right there. All right, let's All call right, it baby. an episode. Robert, absolute pleasure as always. Um, use promo code RYM. You're going to get twenty percent off at the moment. Take advantage of that forty percent off sale. Load up and just send an yeah. email. Be like, I, I I found you through on your mouth. Yeah, when you when you get one of those, sorry, when you get you will you get an email from us uh, for like a review of how the product was. It'll ask where you heard about us, and there if you, you go. let us know, we'd appreciate it. Hell yeah. So, you know, take advantage of the sale. I'm Jewish too. You know, take all the percentage off that you can load up for the holiday season. Send it to some friends. Yes. It's been a great episode of the Run Your Mouth podcast. Robert, I appreciate having you on. Thank you, sir. I'll see you next time. Uh, call, right. you, call me later. Peace. Peace. All right. That is our episode, everybody. Texas weekend this weekend. Come hang out. Dallas on Friday night. Uh, Fort Worth, to be more accurate. Uh, Austin with Scott Horton on Saturday and then Sunday at Texas A&M. Um, links in the episode description, all sorts of tour dates. Have a good one.